This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Not only is it nice to be able to take a bit of a COVID break, talk about some things that are not exactly COVID-19 related, it's also great when we get to do that and talk about a song that is called Good News from a guy who has brought us amazing music for years. Jim Cuddy joins us on London Live. Jim, how's the day going? Oh, the day's going great. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for finding a way to put together a song that is called Good News. Did this, this must have started a little bit before what we're going through right now. No, it pretty much started, uh, I've been up at my farm for the last four or five months, and uh, eventually all this stuff that was going around, the isolation, the protests, I had to do something, I had to write something. So... So how do you take all of what's going on and think, okay, yeah, I can I can put this to music. How does that even happen? <laughs> well, I think what you start off with was how it's affecting you personally. And for me, it was this sense of being locked away and not having any effect on what was going on. And then I just started to look at what was going on. And part of me was proud that so many people were acting together. You know, whether it was peaceful protests or people offering a helping hand to neighbors during the pandemic. And um, and then trying to figure out what is going to be the lasting effect of us. And in kind of coming up with lyrics for that, how much did you allow yourself to kind of look at lasting effects and, and weigh in on that? <laughs> I allowed myself one verse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that... <clears throat> What you do as a songwriter is sort of uh, describe images and let the listener figure out what kind of impact they're going to have. We're talking with Jim Cuddy. He has a brand new song out. It is called Good News, and it is something that, again, provides that inspiration. Writing inspiring music, that, that can't be something you just sit down and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write an inspiring song. How often do you find that something comes up that people just gravitate to? Because in your career, you could point to so many songs that have so many different connections for people. Do you ever know when you've done it that it will happen, or do you kind of find out after the fact? I guess you kind of find out after the fact, because um, you... You write things that are that are personal, and you write things that are that are dig into your personal memories and your personal emotions. And um, but this one was different because this one, when I finished it, I realized that uh, this was it, this was the only time it needed to come out. It didn't need to wait until I did a record and have it come out then, because it really was. I want to look back and see that I did something to try to to try to describe what we all went through. Jim, in terms of being a musician right now, so much of what you're able to do is get out and play live. And people in London can think of a, a show years ago with O Week coming up that you played with Blue Rodeo at Centennial Hall. And mm -hmm. so there have been all these great connections over the years. But now that's kind of changed a little bit. How have you dealt with that aspect of the music world? Well, it was pretty difficult for a while because I think that when we all started to lock down and, and I finished the tour in February, so locking down in March didn't seem that drastic. 
<laughs> but when all the summer shows start to be postponed to the following summer and then the fall goes away and and now we where we find ourselves in this uh, position where in Ontario we can sort of gather as a hundred people outside, obviously that's an enormous difference. Um, I'm glad it's at least a hundred so that emerging mu- musicians can can get started. But I think that what we found through all that was we found a way to do things virtually, to do live streams, to do... I did a couple of concerts last week in, in the Niagara area and wineries outside. I mean, we will figure it out, regardless of how long this thing goes. We'll figure out something. And the one benefit to it all is that it created a greater sense of intimacy so that the concerts now, instead of being big public gatherings, you know, communal gatherings, the things that will come in the near future will be smaller, more intimate, more connection between people and you know in the short term at least that's not such a bad thing anybody who thinks of life as a musician as a so-called rock star will think yeah yeah and then and then you get to the point where you're playing sold out arenas and there's thousands (laughs) of people and it's so good but you just brought up the other kind of side of this the intimate side of this how special Mm -hmm. can that be for somebody who's up on stage Oh, it can be really special because you you like to think that, you know, the the larger the crowd, the more uh, distant people get from the actual particulars of a song. It becomes about the the thing you're all experiencing together, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love that. But when you do a a concert for 100 people, then you realize that every word you say matters. And and, uh, so you you just have to be more careful and you have to you have to realize that, that certain things have a lot of impact that might not have had an impact in, in such a big crowd. And I think that what I've found with the few things that I've done so far is that a lot of people are so glad to have live performance back. It means it's been a long time since they had music in their lives and they're very happy now. I feel that, but I have music in my life every day. So I wasn't aware of, of how, uh, you know, how much of a desert it was for people. So I, it, it, that was very gratifying. Jim Cuddy joining us. He will be performing with the Jim Cuddy Band, in fact, outside. I think, well, kind of outside. Will the stage be outside of the Burning Kiln Winery in, in St. William? I'm trying to think of where that one is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's okay. outside. It's in a field. It's beautiful. <laughs> so that's coming up September 10th. You're also doing a drive-in show with the Sheepdogs, a socially distanced <laughs> drive-in show. What's it been like putting that together? <laughs> you know, uh Obviously, Blue Rodeo has been offered a few of those, but we've kind of steered clear. So this is the Jim Cuddy Band, and we're opening for the Sheepdogs, so they're doing all the all the operational stuff is theirs. I just show up and play for 45 minutes. I want to make sure that my band is comfortable uh, doing it, and so this is a good way to try. The Sheepdogs are great guys. They're really fun. Jimmy Boskill plays in, well, all our bands, uh, and so it'll be a good way to try it out. I don't know. It's the one that makes the least automatic sense to me but i'll i'll see and in terms of not making too much sense just the 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 idea of you being up there on the screen and and everybody being in their cars i mean who would have thought this could ever be a thing (laughs) i think that's it's going to be a weird thing I, i assume that the on stage will be we'll have a sound system but then people also have it on their radios. Now, if there is even the slightest bit of delay between them, it's going to be a very peculiar experience. But if people have done it, so obviously it works. 
Well, you said it. We want live music. We need live music. You think about a house full of quiet, you can't have that. You, you've got to turn on <laughs> something. You, you've got to make music, and uh, you've been doing it for us in such a great way. Jim, thanks so much, and, and thanks for putting together good news because that's something in itself that at least provides that little inspiration that we're all going through the same thing in the same way at the same time. Oh, man, well spoken. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for talking to me. Hey, thanks so much. Good luck with everything. Stay safe. Okay, you too. See ya. That's Jim Cuddy. He'll be performing with the Jim Cuddy Band. Watch for Blue Rodeo, but we'll actually hear a little bit of good news in just a moment. I don't necessarily mean, we've. hey, I've got this piece of good news. I mean Jim Cuddy and good news. We talked earlier on the show about Fred Van Vliet, who's a guard for the Toronto Raptors, and how he has said that when the NBA went into their bubble, it was hoped that we would see some things done differently. It was hoped that we would see some agents for change and that change would take place. And then all of a sudden, we get a shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Jacob Blake has shot as many as eight times, where his kids, three of them, little ones, are right nearby. And you start thinking, okay, this... This is this is still the continuing thread of what has been playing out for far too long. And this weekend in London, there will be a Black Lives Matter event. It happens on Saturday at 2 p.m. in Victoria Park. And joining us right now to talk about that is Gal Harper, who is a member, an organizer, and one of the lead activists of Black Lives Matter London. Gal, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Gal, let's talk a little bit about this event first so that we understand what's happening and why it is happening. Let's let's begin with the what is happening. 2 p.m. Victoria Park, what's taking place? Um, well, this, this event, um, it's been organized by, uh, you know, groups and organizations from all across the country. Uh, we all kind of got together and uh, decided that we needed to stage something bigger to get to get more people's attention um, and to try and get people to understand that uh, we're not just going to take this lying down, like things need to change and it needs to happen now. Um, so this event, it's uh, the specific message in this event is the importance of defunding the police and uh, what that means and why we need to do it. Um, you know, with the term defund the police, there's been a lot of backlash and confusion surrounding that tagline. Um, I believe strongly that the criticisms are almost entirely attributed to a lack of understanding. Um, there's a lot of people who just shut down the conversation because they have their own preconceived opinions of what the movement is. Um, but I fully accept the responsibility to educate people on what it means to defund the police. Um, I've had conversations with some who they just suggest alternative wording. Um, perhaps using the word reform would be easier for people to get on board with, but we need to do this. The terminology and language is accurate. Um, we do need to defund the police. So this event is um, it's about education. The last one, it was about awareness, right? We wanted people to know what was happening. Well, there's no denying right now that everyone's aware, right? We all know what's happening, and it's been happening for a long time, and enough is enough. So this this next step after awareness is about education. So we're trying to get everyone on board with understanding how defunding the police will make communities safer for everyone. 
We're talking with Gal Harbor, member organizer and one of the lead activists of Black Lives Matter London. And the event that Gal is talking about will take place 2 p.m. in Victoria Park this Saturday. But as Gal points out, this is happening all over the place at roughly the same time. So this is something that is part of a wider event. But Saturday, it will be in Victoria Park at 2 p.m. Gal, let's look at that. Defund the police. And if it does one thing, it catches attention. And like you say, some people will hear it and completely shut off saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not living in a world where there is no policing. But that's one of those things where you've you've got to say, wait, maybe we can start the education there in that this is not about saying no policing. What is this saying? Um, Yeah, so it's it's really people just kind of have to get past that initial fear, um, that that uh, that reaction that, you know, it just comes automatically. It's like people are afraid of living somewhere without police because we've been conditioned to believe that police make us safer. Um, you know, when you say defund the police, people don't realize how much of um, budgets go towards policing, uh, not just um, in municipalities, but uh, provincially and federally as well. Canada spends um, $15.1 billion annually on all levels of policing. That's municipal, provincial, and federal, but that doesn't even include all policing, um, you know, military police, stuff like that. But Canadian taxpayers are spending $41 million a day on policing. Um, and there's, the results aren't getting better, right? If you look at the municipal police budgets anywhere, the numbers are accessible. You can look at them up for yourself. They're going up continuously. But what's happening to the crime rates? We're not seeing the results. So why keep spending, you know, raising the budget, getting more guns, you know, militarizing the police if it's not actually preventing the crime? Because the, the police aren't there to prevent the crime. They're more of a response team after the crime. And a lot of times they're responding to things that we shouldn't be sending armed officers to respond to. Right? So. We've talked about that. So, would that be referring to things like calls for people experiencing mental health crises, things like that? Exactly. So, calls for service, that's what they're called. Um, they're mostly non criminal events that are related to public safety and well being. So, um, you know, anything from a, um, an alarm going off, a traffic accident. You know, someone being sick, a mental health emergency, um, an overdose. There's just so many, so many different calls that these police officers are going to um, that they just aren't trained to handle. Um, so really, it's just you know, if we increase funding to police salaries and weaponry, it's statistically proven to us that it's not going to prevent these crimes from happening, um, like violent crimes, you know, theft, homicide, um, mental health-based crisis, and um, gender-based violence, sending armed police officers to these, to these calls is not something that, uh, that is showing results, right? So that's what we want to change. We want to start investing in, um, you know, mental health services, um, public housing. Just a, there's a wide variety of different avenues that we can explore to um, really get rid of the, the crime that comes based on um, or rooted in poverty and mental health issues. We're talking with Gal Harper, member organizer, one of the lead activists of Black Lives Matter London. We're talking about an event that takes place on Saturday, and not just in London, but this is part of a much wider event. It will happen at 2 p.m. in Victoria Park, and as Gal says, the first time we had something like this in London, it was about awareness. This time, it is about education, and 
conveying that education. What do you feel the best way to do that, Gal, is? Um, well, really just speaking with people, um, making sure that we're heard. I mean, uh, you know, just me being on, on your show today, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity and the platform to share this information. But, I mean, all everything that I'm saying is easily available, readily available online. Um, if, it, if anyone cares to look up what defund the police actually means, um, the information's there. And the statistics show that this isn't something that's, um, you know, some kind of new experiment that we want to try. This is taking place in cities all across North America, um, just in small sample sizes. And the results, they're there, right? The stats show that this works. So it just doesn't make sense for us to continue down the path that we're on when we've seen that there's an alternative um, route and a solution. When you look at kind of implementing the change, it's it's very true that all of us can make a difference in this, in looking at ourselves and looking how we behave, in looking at what we might be able to do. But if you look at, at making actual change, where do you feel this has to go through? Does it start with police forces? Does it start with government? Does it start somewhere entirely different? What do you think? Yeah, so we're uh, we're addressing uh, the government on all levels. So um, really, we just we want to get the attention of uh, you know we all the groups that are in the coalition for BIPOC liberation. We all have our own mis- municipalities to um, to tend to and to make our voices heard there. But uh, coming together to you know make our voices heard to the province and to um, the federal government and demand change from them. Um, that's really where this has to go at this point because the there's only so much you can do with your your local police force because they have so much power and everything has just been sealed. There's like it's it's so hard just to get um, information, right? You have to pay for information. There's there's no they're not uh, as transparent as as we're led to believe. Um, so you know we just we're demanding our basic human rights to live peacefully. That's really what it comes down to. Um, you know, people talk about systemic racism not existing, right? They say, well, point out a law that's that's racist. Well, it's not that cut and dry. It's not that simple. What happens is we have, the way our laws are written, they allow for individual prejudice and racism to operate at a systemic level. So individuals who have, you know, prejudice in their heart or racist tendencies, um, it leads to the oppression of BIPOC communities because they're in a position where they can enforce certain laws and, you know, things like qualified immunity, protecting them from uh, any things, um, any of the liability from actions they may take towards um, minorities. It's uh, it's just something that needs to be reexamined. I mean, these these laws were all written based on colonialism, and we haven't updated them enough. Gal Harper joining us, member organizer and one of the lead activists of Black Lives Matter London. Gal, as a final point, if we are to look at the fact that we had, you know, you name the number of events we could point to and say this this was an element of change. We, we can go way back in time. We can go back decades and still say we can go back, you know, over a century and say this, this should have been the thing that made the change. There have been a lot of voices that have come up in all of this. Do you feel that any move toward any change is taking place right now? Is there any evidence in your mind that, hey, this swell of voices, now maybe we are seeing momentum in this? Is it anywhere? Well, 
um, I'm optimistic, but uh, at the same time, um, I need to. I still need to see action. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of um, posturing on social media. You know, everyone. It's become a marketing scheme for people to support Black Lives, right? Like even the NBA, as you mentioned, with Fred VanVleet, that they put Black Lives Matter on the court. I mean, it's nice to see all this stuff everywhere, but we really need the action and uh, painting Black Lives Matter on a street. Or um, you know, saying it like uh, like it's some kind of tagline at the end of every sentence just to make you feel like a better person. Um, it's really something that we need to see you out there. Um, so this this um, next protest on Saturday, this will really kind of show whether or not people are serious about standing with us. Because um, you know, we had a, a great turnout the first time, and uh, I feel like a lot of that was attributed to you know the lockdown and people having so much time to to really absorb what happened with George Floyd and the way it impacted them because of the current uh, social climate. But now that some time has passed and, uh, you know, people, the attention does fade over time. Uh, there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they weren't really serious about it. They just were doing it because it, it became popular for a moment to support Black and Indigenous lives. And, and right now, I think we need to see that people were serious and that they meant it and that they are willing to stand with us and they are willing to demand change with us. Coming up Saturday at 2 p.m. in Victoria Park is a Black Lives Matter event, and it's part of, again, a number of different events that are taking place in other cities. Gal, thank you so much for talking about this issue with us. We really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you for having me. That's Gal Harper, member organizer and one of the lead activists of Black Lives Matter. London has come an awfully long way in terms of the way it's been built. But at the same time, those roots, that framework, that's all still there. And if you ever get an opportunity to peer into the past through pictures, you can see it. You can see that framework. And you can see things that maybe look completely different. Here, picture this. You are traveling north on Warncliffe, okay? So you have come up the Golden Auto Mile. You have driven through the intersection at Warncliffe and Commissioners. You continue along. you got Source for Sports that comes up on your right. You pass Emory Street, and then you make sure that you get over to the left-hand lane because if you don't, that right one will spit you right downtown. You pass Horton, and you go under what I like to call the drippy bridge. Well, that's what the kids always called it, because we would always wait to see if we would get dripped on when we drove underneath it, because it happens more than you think. That's something that you can get in your in your mind. Imagine you were doing that not in a vehicle. You were doing it in a horse-drawn carriage. You would still see that drippy bridge. It would still look like you could zoom off into that right-hand turn lane and go downtown. But, no, it was a little different. The roads were dirt. But you still see the framework. And that is something, the kind of thing, that Vintage London has been helping us to look back to for years now. Colin Duck and Cindy Hartman do a great job on Twitter and on other forms of social media, Facebook, bringing us all kinds of vintage pictures. And even though this is radio, they're not going to be able to show us vintage pictures. But they join us now to talk about putting all of this together. Cindy, Colin, welcome to London Live. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. 
Let's go back to when this project began, because it wasn't last week, uh, yet it wasn't a hundred years ago. When did you get this going? So this actually started in November 2012, and I personally didn't start it, but I took it over in January 2013. There's a guy who was starting up vintage sites right across Canada and then looking for local people to take it over. And I just happened to post a few photos to the site. And then he asked, would I like to take it over and run it? And little did I know seven years later what it would turn out, turn into. Well, it's amazing to see some of the pictures that you have. Now, Cindy, do you and Colin own any of these pictures yourself? Was this one of those things where, just a second, I'll go to the drawer and we'll get all kinds of things? Well, some of the pictures we do own ourselves. Very few, though. I, I do collect old gas station photos, so there are some that I have collected old hard, hard copies from. Uh, most of the photos we get from Western Archives, the London Free Press Negative Collection. Um, we get them from the London Room, and we get them from responders on the Vintage London Facebook site. No way. We're talking with Cindy Hartman and Colin Duck from Vintage London. So there is a Facebook site. There is a Twitter feed as well. Are you posting anywhere else at the moment? Not as of this moment. Those two, Facebook and Twitter, take up a lot of our time. Majority of it is Facebook, uh, but we do post to Twitter, as you have noticed. Cindy, how hard is it to come across photographs like this that would go back and even show, in some cases, horse-drawn carriages? Well, the photo that you uh, so uh, well painted the picture of had did come from Western Archives, and it's a great photo. And the interesting thing about that Warncliffe Road that photo was taken at a time when that bridge was just put in. Before that, the bridge, uh, the road had a bridge over the railway track, and they raised it. And, you know, we can see that raised um, trestle going through Greenway Park. And so it is difficult to find photos right now with COVID. You know, the libraries aren't open. But uh, luckily, uh, Western Archives does share online, so we're able to find some that way. We're talking with Cindy Hartman and Colin Duck of Vintage London. Colin, in terms of figuring out what photos you're going to post and, and when you're going to put them up there, how do you do that? Well, the big part of it is, through the time we've done this, is we know what appeals to Londoners. And the ones that garner a lot of interest are from the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, because that's more in recent memory. But a lot of what we also think is, is there something in that photo that is there now that people would recognize, but everything else might look different? At least one item would then start the conversation. Isn't that amazing? So when when you see a photo, Cindy, do you know, yeah, yeah, that's that's what Colin's talking about right there, where you can say, I know where that is. I know what corner that is. I know what gas station that is. Can you see it right off the bat? Uh, quite often I can. Sometimes it is hard to see because so much has changed, especially in the downtown area. And often we know what, like Colin said, what's going to appeal to people, and we'll see a real iconic photo. Something like um, 
a Wellington Square Mall, that sort of stuff. And we know it's really going to appeal to um, folks on our page. Okay, before we let you go, do either of you, and Colin, we'll start with you, do you have an absolute favorite photograph that goes back in time in London and shows off something that maybe is still there but is a whole lot different in 2020? I think one of the favorite ones would have to be Dundas and Richmond showing the Christmas shoppers going to see the Simpson windows. That That's any, anything like that will instantly start people talking. And what vintage would that be? What year are we talking about for something that like that? That one would have been, I think, in the 1960s. Really? And every, and there are people who remember that fondly, being able to go and see that display and everything that came with it. Cindy, how about you? I mean, you say you collect gas station photos. Is there a favorite gas station in London that you have? Uh, well, of course, Supertest is one of my favorites. Um, uh, and I'm also always thrilled whenever I see any photographs with the old London Street Railway um, uh, trolley cars in it. Are there plans to keep this going into the foreseeable future, Colin? Yes. Uh, until we run out of sources of photos, we are aiming to keep this going as long as we can. We would love... There are unsourced gems of photos out there in people's archives, their collections of photos, and we appreciate any time people share photos with us. So if anyone out there has photos that show London as it was, anything like that, we would love to see them. How old do they have to be to be considered vintage? Uh, we have photos on the site from the mid-1800s right up to the nineteen late 1980s. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, so take a look through, and it's something that showcases the look of the city. And, and would a rule of thumb be, here's the look of the city, but if I were to go to that particular spot right now, it wouldn't look like that anymore? The, for the most part, but we do have a lot on the site that it might be minor changes, but things will still look similar. So it's just anything that visually shows London's history. Excellent. Well, please continue to do this because it is a fantastic endeavor. And if somebody's looking for something to kind of while away some time, have a look at Vintage London on Facebook or check them out on Twitter and take a look back through some of those pictures. And you can turn it into a game, flash it up on a big screen and have everybody say, I know where that is. That's that is Dundas in Richmond or that is Dundas in Adelaide or you name it. Colin, Cindy, thank you for for what you do, and thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you, Thank so you very much. That's Colin Doug and Cindy Hartman of Vintage London, and you can send them information through their Facebook page very easily or, or through their Twitter feed. Send them a direct message if you happen to have any of those vintage photos that they are talking about. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 